so this is a bit different it is because what this is is really we're gonna be spending six weeks talking about us so there's gonna be six episodes all about cast iron so we're kind of taking a different direction with the podcast a little bit for a few weeks aren't we yeah so it's a lot about us chatting as this local theatre group local in brighton uh, that deal mainly in new writing and creating new stuff. We don't, as a rule, produce already existing stuff. It's stuff mm. that is born of our own writing or our own collaborations, etc. And that comes with its own set of challenges and obstacles i was going to say that sounds too negative actually that's not quite what i mean no but, but that's yeah i think that's true and also the fact that we are based in brighton rather than london conventional wisdom will tell you that's the wrong way to do things because there is so much genuinely good work done in london every night single night in london mm. and in every you know 100 pub theaters in london and there's a different approach for that in brighton uh yeah, because there's a really vibrant sort of theatre scene and nightlife and stuff in Brighton. Um, but it is trickier, and I think some of the trickiness is because London is just down the road. It, so it's kind of... We're like, are we in the shadow? We're not in the shadow. Sh- that sounds too negative as well, but it is... We're, are we competing with London a little? I don't know. I mean, I, I will tend to pig-headedly go against conventional wisdom and go, no, that they're, they're two, they are quite genuinely two different postcodes. And also, I think, yeah, you could argue that London has an advantage in that if, if you just turned up in London this afternoon, you could walk out with your smartphone, type in Fringe Theatre, get lost down that couple of streets and find a show to watch that night that mm. you're going to enjoy. That is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, with Brighton, that might not necessarily happen. No. Or you're, you know, you're going to have to look a lot harder for it and we are going to have to advertise a lot better for it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably fair. Yeah, I think so. So the point of the next six episodes is to really get into what it is that we do and chat about how that's come about, what we're hoping to achieve out of 2019 and really um, take a moment, take a step back and evaluate and also look ahead. Because for the last couple of years, we've been doing this podcast. Yes. Uh, We've had some live shows. We've spoken to lots of artists, lots of theatre makers, lots of creative businesses, all about their work. And we've had a couple of episodes about us, notably the where we sat in Edinburgh and talked about Edinburgh so far. Um, that was in 2017. During um, the end of the Fringe that yeah. year, where we were both quite fatigued. Yeah, and that was a fun episode. And weirdly enough, that episode has sort of stayed with us. And I think... We're quite interested to listen to podcasts about people setting up businesses and talking about what it is that they do on a day-to-day. And we're kind of thinking that the podcast might take a... uh, We might go in a few different directions with the podcast or with the podcast that we produce. 
And also that episode that you were talking about, the Edinburgh Fringe one, where it was a non-guest one, it was us just talking to one another. That's the one that um, you guys listening to um, gave us the most feedback, that, that we've got mm. the most response from that. Which yeah. I, think I, I might not have expected that. Yeah, me neither. And it certainly is our most popular one, I think. So we're taking on that feedback and yeah. we're looking at that and, and thinking, okay, how can we develop the Cast Iron Theatre podcast? And I think we'll always have the interview episodes yes. and we'll always have um, the Brighton Fringe and we'll always have the Edinburgh Fringe or certainly if we're there, we'll we'll chat to people that are making stuff. Um, so yeah, this this episode is really just a sort of hello again and, and to talk about what we us. Do, what yeah, we what, what, which seems iron? really odd. What is Cast Iron Theatre? So Cast Iron Theatre is you and I. Yeah. So Andrew Allen, Michelle Donkin, and we are based in Brighton. We are, and we produce new writing and short play nights and short story nights podcasts and training and uh, uh, we do do hour-long plays fringe length plays and there are you know we're in the early stages of scripts that are a bit longer than that mm. but that's one of the main bulks of the stuff that we put on but the other main bulk what well, something that happens throughout the year is as you've said short play nights uh, which even that just deserves unpacking because i'm fascinated by people's opinion as to what a short play is and whether it's worth people's while or not. Mm. And I know that when we put on, um, when we founded Cast Iron Theatre and we were looking at 10-minute plays, short plays, to put into an entire evening to, as we've always said, to create a platform for local writers to sort of leave a like a calling card of their work. Yeah. And it actually took us a while, didn't it, to... Um, work out that we, we, we ourselves could exploit that quite cheerfully yeah. and put our own work on. So we we do do that. Although mm-hmm. we haven't for the part in the short plays, we haven't so much in the last couple of short play nights. It has been actually almost purely the local uh, and not actually international writers. Yeah, that's kind of where we came from. That's the background of Cast Iron Theatre. We started with the short play nights. We moved into... Um, fringe productions one hour pieces um we've then moved into podcasts we've moved into short story nights for the last three years i think um where we um open submissions for short stories and then those selected are read live um on stage sort of similar to I was going to say similar to The Moth, but they're more uh, verbatim, aren't they? And personal account, really. Yeah, more prose. So, yeah, we've kind of, we've done a lot. We also do workshops around acting, Definitely. writing, improvisation. That's kind of what we've been doing for the last five years. I think it's, obviously, you know, we're, we're creatively, we're in it for ourselves. Yeah. To sort of give our own voices and our own words a stage space but it's been really exciting when we've had uh, people who have cut their teeth at the local uh, amateur theatres or they have come up through um, the theatre courses locally in Brighton and Worthing and have uh, come to us to as you say expand their CV be it as an actor writer or director yeah Um, or indeed even beyond that um, producing uh, 
images for posters or not set design so much because we are in a very simple black box space. Yeah. Space. But there have been people that we've worked with that have uh, done other disciplines such as photography yeah. to, to expand their CV. Yeah. And it's just great being part of that sort of creative community and hopefully helping each other out I think so there's a real nice buzz around Brighton for doing that and I think that's what we wanted to be part of and we also wanted to you know put on work and kind of hang out in a in a in the with the cool kids the cool theater kids um so yeah that's kind of where we came from we've also got um a couple of sort of fun nights throughout the year as well that we do which is the Christmas karaoke kind of Shows. Yeah, it's called Selection Box. Yeah. And it tends to be, as you say, it's a karaoke sort of thing, except that with karaoke, you tend to you tend to pick the song because you know what the lyrics yeah. are, whereas with Selection Box, the gag is that all the plays, which are about two minutes long, three minutes mm. long, and they're two-handers generally, well, they are two-handers, the scripts are wrapped up in Christmas gift wrap mm. so that the brave actors don't actually know what the dialogue is. Yeah. And they sort of read it, what's called, they read it cold yeah. from in front of the audience, and that yeah. can be fun. And they're, and they're people out of the audience as well. Yeah, they, they pay their ticket to come and see the show, and then they put their name in a hat. Yeah. Sometimes it's actually a hat. Yeah. And then <laughs> they get called out at random and get to read the plays, yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. Very silly. Um, and also, for four years, we've run Not Just a Companion as well, which is the uh, night of uh, traditionally male speeches and scenes, gender-flipped, so performed by women. So, yeah, and that's just happened. We just did that this week. We did, that was great. Raising money for Rise for that, yeah. uh, as part of the ticket price. And that that has been very exciting and very lovely to be involved with. Yeah. And we um, actually, yeah, for the last two years, we've had a local charity that we support. Last year it was the Brighton and Hove Food Bank. Yeah. And then this year we've chosen Rise, which is a charity that helps support those who are affected by domestic abuse. And, yeah, this year we're we're hoping to raise money for them we've got also we need to mention that on the 24th of march esme bird is going to be um abseiling down from the top of the i360 um in our name in cast iron theater's name um in order to raise money for rise yeah um and the reason that esme is doing that is because she's amazing and she's she's performed in quite a lot of our short play nights over the years she's involved in improvisation um acting as well and she uh has volunteered herself to do that because i am absolutely terrified of heights and um much as you would like to do it i have basically banned you (laughs) we'll have to ask esme what she would find most terrifying abstaining of the i360 or improvising without a script yeah yeah i think nothing terrifies her yeah. I have she's just one of these people that is just super brave. I'll add the link to yeah. the just giving page that would get you to be able to support Esme. So she's trying to raise five hundred pounds for Rise and every single penny counts. Um so people and listening to this will be able to find the link. Yeah. In the, in the, in the, in the show the notes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what 
we have been doing and stuff. Yeah. Have we ever talked about who we are and what we do? I feel like we have. What our, like, what our CVs are? Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. So who are you? Oh, God. Um, I'm not God. Although I played God once. I, I, I played God in a version of The Mysteries and I was on a very tall scaffolding out on a swivel chair. I was like the first deity with an inferiority complex. And it was at Croydon Youth Theatre uh-huh. uh, organisation, Saito. And, yeah, I got cast as God. And the, the, the acting career has pretty much been on a downward curve since then, yeah. really. Can't really follow that, can no, you? No, no. In three sentences or less, who are you, Andrew Allen? I am Andrew Allen. <laughs> um... I have directed, I have written, I have acted, I have made lists. You make lists. I make lists. You're a writer. You, you, do you, because it's really, it's hard for you, I imagine, to say which discipline you come from because you worked in, you, you were involved in youth theatre growing up, so that's what acting and directing, but you've always written as well, and now as your sort of career, you are known, I think, more as a writer because you have published some short stories and things. So, I mean, what I suppose what I'm asking is which of the disciplines would you say that you are, if you had to say? I don't honestly know. I don't know that anyone would have to say. No, I don't honestly know. And also... I'm not sure that, to be pedantic about what you said, that I did grow up doing in the youth theatre, because... Didn't you? No, but although, you know, we're now old enough to think of 18 as being very young, um, but that's when I joined the youth theatre. I suppose you were an adult, so... So I didn't have that in my formative years. Oh, I see, of course, yeah. I always thought that 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 was much younger, but of course it wouldn't have been, no. 18 isn't young, is it? No, you kind of... Skipped childhood. Yeah, and you sort of calcified into what you think you... Or, or, you know, you wore a ballerina when you were a kid and then you... That's the thing you used to do as mm. a kid. Um, whereas I... Yeah, you because know, I, I used to do stand-up for a couple of years. Um, and I, some of the plays that I write are comedic. But if somebody were to say, oh, were you the person who um, was at the back of the class avoiding being bullied by doing impersonations mm. of teachers... No, on all those counts, I wasn't at the back of the class. I wasn't doing impersonations of the teachers, and I didn't avoid getting bullied. So, um, <laughs> um, so were you? Do you think because you were a writer then as a child? Like what? What? What bit sort of drew you to theatre? I, I suppose I. I honestly don't know. There are certain decisions in, in my life that I think I don't know how I got to that point, mm. and I. I went to an uh, uh, like a Friday night work acting work workshop at Saito. Um, the guy running those workshops was a guy called Alan Clark, who's quite an icon at Saito. And they were doing Pinter model um, duologues at that workshop that night. And I read quite well, I guess, for that. And he said that to me at the end of the session. I'd only just turned up. Uh, he said that to me at the end of the session. He went, oh, do you want to do that then? 
do you want to do that play? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm not quite sure what mm. that entailed. And so I found myself in a production of that, a two-hander production mm. of that within the next four or five weeks. Wow. Um, and I don't imagine that, I mean, it wasn't even an audition, but I don't imagine my audition was that good. It's just that that's, I think, how he approached people yeah. uh, who would, like, look bit scared and lost on their first day going okay you're going to get the main part in this play go yeah yeah which may or may not have informed the way that I tend to work as a youth theatre teacher if there's somebody who shows a bit of talent but is quite clearly never going to put their hand up Mm. I'm probably going to go oh right let's throw you something that common sense says is probably a bit too big for you because generally speaking those kids will always clamour for that and go yep I can actually they rise to that to that if you yeah high expectations people tend to rise to them um so you because you teach youth theatre now as well yeah so I mean the writing has always been there in the background then I think so um I've always been writing yeah short stories or plays since, like, as a child? Yes, but it, you know when people sort of say that unhelpful answer, oh, I write for myself? Yeah. And people who are told that find that quite a frustrating answer of going, well, why are you doing that? What's the point mm. of that? But there's... It does make sense because if... And this is what I think is important about Cast Iron. Is that there are so many people who write, regardless of the quality of their work or whatever, but they don't have that avenue to... A place to write it for, you know... Mm. Who, who, where do you send your work? Where do you get it produced and whatever? Mm-hmm. And so I think it took me a while before I found a place to get work on. I remember when I was about 23 or so, 24, some friends were putting on a play. Um, and it was about an hour long, so they invited me to write the other hour. Mm. Um but that was, I used the word just advisedly, but that was just a church hall. It was packed, but it was packed with friends of that first writer. Um, so in terms of an industry night, it was not one at all. Yeah. In the, in the terms of it being the same sort of people that you'd invite to your cousin's wedding, it was packed. Mm. Um, but I guess that, that underlines what I'm saying about... Um, how many writers or indeed actors have an avenue where they can just they can exercise that yeah i think i think that's what we i think that's the heart of cast iron really is is giving opportunities to people and ourselves yeah um to have their work seen um to develop their their skills and to have opportunities I, obviously, I want to speak to you about w- w- what you are and w- where you've come mm. from. But as a bridging to that, then, when we are, for instance, with short plays. Yeah. Because um, there's many things with short play, uh, stories, etc. With short plays and we ask for submissions, what is it possibly that we at Cast Iron are looking for uh, in terms of what we think we'll put on a good night? Um what we think we can do justice to, potentially what our politics are, what 
what's going to get us, if you if you are going to submit a play to us what's going to get us past page two so I think that, and we say this on the, the submission windows for um, our short play nights as well, is there's technical aspects that we look look at. So to to do the boring bit first, I think. So we look for plays that, are, um, that have one to, the, one to four characters. Um, they have to be able to be produced in a black box space. So very, very limited props, very limited set. If if there's a chair that's great so really really it comes down to narrative it comes down to story and I think for us what we're looking for are plays that can be performed by any gender it they're always nice that we're not uh pre describing yeah but also above and beyond that I think what we're looking for are just exciting narratives things that show us something ordinary in a different way so that's always nice or things that just completely take us in a completely different direction you know and and <clears throat> tell stories that we we haven't seen a lot of because what we do get a lot of are coming of age or relationship dramas and they're fine they have to be blooming exceptional to rise above the others that we get so for us it's just it's that it's really unhelpful as a writer to hear all of this because you go well what does that mean but it is just something that sparks our interest so we tend to like stuff that is clever that says something in a different way um we like things that are so again, technically, in a scene that you'd get in late and you'd, you'd come out early, so you're not doing making the tea acting. So, you know, characters aren't just saying, hello, hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? How's your mother, who is also my sister? You know, all of those basic things that writers know already to do, I think. Um, those kind of plays that that can get us into a story quickly and make us sympathise or identify with characters are always good. And also, it's really hard to tell a complete story in 10 minutes. And anyone that is able to do that is already probably going to get past the post with us and get into a long list or a short list, because that's a hell of a skill. So I think there's you talked about um, making the tea acting or making the tea writing. I think that's really important, mm. even on a practical sense. In terms of occasionally we'll get a play in where somebody will say, "Would you like a cup of tea?" Mm. and then they will make it on the stage, mm. or they'll go off and they'll come back on. But just on a purely logical sense of if you think about how the way an audience's mind works, yeah. they'll instantly be going. Has the kettle already boiled them? Yeah, exactly. And so stuff like that in terms of... And indeed, there have occasionally there'll be scripts where she puts on the kettle, she looks for her phone while the kettle boils, mm. and this is not necessarily a criticism, it's just an alert point of writers... I, I would behold writers to think about 
is that what you want to happen in your play? Mm. That three minutes of that is going to be a character standing in front of a boiling kettle scrolling through a phone. And you're talking also about it's quite difficult to get a play, uh, a story mm. done in, in 10 minutes. And I think that's actually quite a, an interesting and helpful way to think about it in terms of why is that difficult or why do we perceive that as difficult? Mm. Do you need, as some writers who I don't necessarily agree with will say that you cannot produce a story in 10 minutes. You do need a full two hours mm. for a play. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's a very, and in fact, I don't agree with it at all. No. But there's, that's a nice focusing exercise that if you can reverse engineer it and go, right, so a, a, a two-hour play tends to be set up of plot points and characters for the first 45 minutes mm-hmm. uh, of that one. And then the the reveal or the twist or the the inciting incident, the problem, tends to be the last 50 minutes of that one. That's mm. your first hour or first hour 10. And then the resolve of that is the last 45 minutes in Act 2, which means that you, there's already a structure there. Yeah. Which means if you apply it back to the 10 minutes, then you know that you're, you, as in terms of setup and character, mm. you've only got the first two minutes. You've only got the first one minute 50. Yeah. And then the next four minutes, five minutes, has to be the characters responding, reacting. Yeah. So he needs to move on. It's always about the next thing. And then the last three minutes is all about that resolve. Yeah. I'll tell you what is also... Because I, w- I would disagree with your timing on that, on the two-hour one, of the inciting instant. And then... Because I, I follow a different way of writing, I think. Um, I I would have the inciting instant much earlier, but I would... I, I work on... I kind of work on a John Truby anatomy of story structure, which has things kicking off very, very quickly. Um, and then layers of stuff going on across two hours. Yeah. But I know, I, I know what you mean. My use of the term inciting incident is probably the, the wrong one. Certainly that we should, have an act. We should kick in in the first five minutes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there should be a twist to that, an upset of that, sure. to end that one. Yeah. And also, so there's two things I was going to say about, um, for me, I think a story has to be about something is learnt by someone. And whether, and it can't, that sounds far too easy and it sounds pretty boring, but if you look at the heart of every single narrative, there's always a lesson is learned. And I I don't mean like a big overarching lesson of how to live your life, but it, it can really boil down to that. So I would say that every story has to be a discovery is made of something. And whether that is a discovery that... You know, if it's a tragedy of something goes wrong because something is revealed. So it's all about revelation. So revelation and consequence, cause and effect, cause and effect all the way through. And that gives you either a happy ending, a sad ending, a tragic ending, or it gives you a sort of ambiguous ending that the audience then are made to work to resolve it in their own minds to say oh that's about this or that's about that or oh I think it's about this this is how to live your life like um the cherry orchard um is very I you know that it's about it's about uh, different opposing values on how to live your life that kind of you know so I'm being very vague but I think that a narrative has to be about something (laughs) It has to be about something to be learned. Yeah, and to distill it in terms of 
how a play operates or how a story operates. Mm. For me, it's increasingly about... Because you're told as a writer and an actor to live in the moment, what's mm. happening right now, and that is valid and helpful. Uh, but if you want to push the story along, and this is in many ways repeating something or reiterating something that one already knows, but stories about what happens next. Yeah. You know, what are you moving towards? And that gives your story for forward momentum. And therefore, it also allows you to get rid of prologue because quite often you do have, hello, hello, who are you? And actually, yeah. if the interesting thing is that one of them is going to murder the other, mm. then, it, especially if you've only got 10 minutes to play with, then the first line could be, I'm here to murder you because we don't need to, yeah. you know, even if you, as a writer, uh, you might argue, no, 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 I need to see the trust beforehand, whatever. Yeah. That's valid. But how much can you strip past the bone? Yeah. And it's just, I find more and more that writing is very similar to my imagination of how mathematics, like high-level maths is. Sure. I'm not great at maths, but at the same time, I see that there's sort of a poetry and a beauty in maths. Yeah. Um, and I think writing becomes like this great formula of being able to to play with cause and effect, being able to play with point of view. If you set two characters up that have opposing values and then put them in a room with a problem, they're going to approach that problem in a different way. Um, and the outcome of that says something about you as a writer. So when people say, write what you know, gosh, I could carry on for hours talking about this and it's not necessarily what the point of this podcast episode is today. But if people say, write what you know, they don't, I hope, because it's such a trite saying nowadays, but I hope people don't take that to mean that you can only write about living in Streatham and you can only write about working in a bar or whatever because that's what you're doing now and that's what you know. I think that means that you have a point of view about life and that is completely independent to you. Every single person has their way of living and the way that they, their value set, their history, their childhood, their their moral compass. And by having two characters that you've written on stage with differing values, even very slightly, about about how to live their life, somewhere in the middle is your voice and I will talk endlessly about John Truby being an absolutely fabulous writing tutor and if anyone can get hold of the book called Anatomy of Story by John Truby I recommend it thoroughly there's not I've recommended it around quite a lot and people either get it or they don't but I really really think that has been pivotal in my life as a writer to completely pull apart how I how i approach writing and how I approach that sort of mathematical formulaic mm, as a positive formulaic way of writing because people think formulaic writing is very negative literally as a, as a formula yeah as a formula that is poetic and beautiful and can change a structure so you were saying a moment ago a while back uh, about the misunderstanding that some people have of all the interpretation that mm. some people have of uh, write what you know. Yeah. And going to the guy that I tend to quote from a lot, um, Chuck Windig, uh, and he, I'm going to misquote him slightly because I forget which order he talks about, but he discusses that. He spends a couple of um, pages discussing about what write what you know. Mm. And he talks about um, write 
what you are, right? What you are, mm. what, 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 the, how you operate the system, and he takes it on again to talk about right about what you understand. Yes, I think that's really interesting in terms of what you know is one thing, mm. but it becomes all wallpaper of going, and it's why also sometimes narratives. If you write what you know, then you have two people going, well, racism is bad, isn't it? Racism is bad. Mm-hmm. Or, at its not necessarily better level, you have, I'm going to create a character who is a racist to tell the other characters that that's bad. And, well, you, it, your ending is presumably a foregone conclusion yeah. because you're creating this bogeyman <clears throat> when there are already real horrible people in the r- real world mm-hmm. who... W- are not as elegantly spoken or horrifically unelegantly spoken that this doesn't apply. Mm. And so if you write what you understand, then you've got a richer palette to operate from. But yeah. you, you spoke about you know what your history in, in terms of John Truby is and what goes on in your head with mathematics. So that seems to be a nice opportune moment to come to the end of the bridge and say, uh, uh, M- Michelle Donkin, uh, who are, what are you? <laughs> so I'm, I'm a writer... That's 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 me. That's my background. I I have always written, and I think I've talked about this before in other podcasts as well. Um, but yeah, I've always written. I've written um, from uh, since I can remember. I've I've written stories. I used to write um, screenplays in my room, Star Trek screenplays, Sequest ESV screenplays that always had you know the. Suddenly, there's a new character who's a young British girl on the Enterprise, uh-huh. and she's, you know, her and Wesley Crusher get on really well, and there might be a romantic entanglement. <laughs> so, yeah, that was yeah. my young fantasy life. Um, but, yeah, I've always expressed myself through writing. Um, I did dabble in acting when I was sort of... I, I wanted to be an actor, um, when I was younger, but was not allowed to have after-school activities, um, or and there was not enough money to go to drama school or drama clubs or what have you. I just there was no opportunity for that at all for me. Um, so, with little money and very little freedom, I was able to just kind of sit in my room with a pen and a paper and later a typewriter with an electronic screen oh, yeah. um, and write and I taught myself to touch type at the age of I think between 12 and f- 16 14 maybe I think I taught myself to touch type around that age so I, I um, and that really changed the way that I write because I was always really bad at handwriting and really bad at spelling um, so that's a tip for anyone who might be younger listening. If you think you're rubbish at spelling and handwriting, don't worry about it. Just learn to type and everything's corrected for you. So, yeah, because don't let that be a barrier and don't let that make you think that you're not a writer because you are. It's just the medium of getting the words out. Just get the words out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've always written um, Frustrated Actor. I did do a bit of amateur Dramatics yeah. in Carshorton, near where, where I used to live. I was in one play called Female Transport um, in about 1994, I think. Um, yeah, and I had about three lines, and that was great. 
but my character had to kill themselves so they had to rig up the sort of like a thing a harness that then there was a hook and then there was this noose and it absolutely terrified me yeah, yeah so I was always terrified that um it would go wrong somehow and I'd you know not that I would die but that I would somehow ruin the play by falling and having to rescue myself and not yeah. be dead yeah. at that moment in the play um so I think that that clouded my experience of that but yeah I, I think I always wanted to act I think I may have acted in school stuff but maybe not but yeah other than that um writing was the the thing that I did throughout my entire childhood and then I went off and traveled a bit well I didn't travel at all I went off and lived in the Canary Islands and for a couple of years and ran bars and sang I was a singer for a bit um, and then moved back to England and lived in Derby. Um, yeah, bit of a nomad. And then was I uh, went to university and studied film and creative writing. And then went to the and then finished university. Worked for the BBC as a runner for a little bit. Um, and then left the BBC to join um, the National Film and Television School on a master's scholarship. um, as a screenwriter Um, and I also worked for the BBC Writers Room for a little bit as well as a reader and Theatre 503 in Battersea as a reader for a little bit Um, so I've read a lot of plays and I've done a lot of uh, a lot of reading of scripts and stories and plays and things so that's a bit of my experience as well So Michelle Duncan you have as you've just said, a nomadic sort of formative years. Yeah. In that you pinball from place to place and location to location. Yeah. Um, whereas I have tended to be a little bit more static from place to place. Mm. And as we've discussed, my interests might be quite sort of multi in acting, writing, directing. Whereas you've been quite nomadic and going from place to place and being quite singular with your passion, which is writing. Yeah. Does the one affect the other? You know, the fact that you've been to so many different locations, etc., mm. and had those experiences, does that form the type of writer that you are? I think it makes me... There's, like, positive and negatives to it, and I think that it it makes me feel like an outsider and perhaps I always would have done even if we stayed put growing up um I'm all I'm I think all writers have this but I don't know because I I only know what's inside my own head but I certainly always feel like I'm observing life and because I have like no roots geographically that's quite interesting as well I think that I kind of I'm always interested in structure societal structure office structure um town structure you know that kind of layers of society stratification social stratification has always been an interest to me um and the ways in which we as people have our identities formed by our interactions is and and I think as a writer that isn't in my stories that sort of nomadicness isn't part of my narratives at all my stories but I think that it really helps me to 
have characters to to create characters because I like building identities. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's definitely a link in that to be able to observe people, watch people and try and understand people because when you've moved around a lot as a child, you very quickly learn to assimilate sort of different schools. Yeah. Like I think I grew up I think I went to about 10 different primary schools. No, probably probably five different primary schools and two secondary schools and you learn yeah, you learn quite quickly how to blend, how to not blend, what what groups are what. And and that's really interesting as a writer to be able to create because then, yeah, every location is a different version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, yeah. Does that answer the question? It's interesting in terms of the sorts of work, as you say, the sorts of work that you write and also the sorts of work that you enjoy uh that you you know either on tv or on the stage or in prose that you enjoy and i'm trying to decipher if because social stratification is an interesting one um because that can get into political comment Mm. which is as far as i'm aware not something that you that's not necessarily what you're going to binge on even something like you know something like the west wing which is literally about politics, isn't so much about political comment, really, because mm. it's encased within that bubble of the West Wing itself. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I'm more interested in the sci-fi and fantasy allegory of, you know, that I don't like writing kitchen sink stuff because no. it doesn't interest me. Well, no, it does interest me, but it doesn't... Because it doesn't immediately strike me as exciting. But what I do like writing is something abnormal to normal society. So whether that's um, vampires, werewolves, uh, sci-fi sort of space stuff, alien stuff, you know, um, ghosts and spooky things. I like things that are on the periphery of society and in sort of... Uh, bleed into society things that are unseen yeah Yeah, which I suppose as an outsider or someone that thinks they're a bit of an outsider I think we all like to think that we're outsiders maybe as well because it helps us not think that we're normal we can all be a hipster dude annoyed at a national publication (laughs) for taking a photograph (laughs) of hipster dudes to illustrate the point that all hipster dudes look alike and then to be told in no uncertain terms unfortunately that photo of you isn't actually you yeah that i think yeah we're all individuals i'm not yeah i'm exactly the same yeah Oh, that's genius. So, yeah, that's me. That's where I come from. Yeah. So we've talked about who we are. We've yeah. talked about what we do. We've um, People know that we're married, right? We're married. We're no now. Yes. Yeah. So, we're, yeah, we're married as well, yeah. so that's interesting. Yeah. House of Writers. Yes. Um, and Theatre Makers. So clearly we live in poverty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, we don't. We 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 get by, um, so yeah. But you know, we, we, there's a Patreon somewhere, and there's a oh yeah, uh, you know, like please do help. And I've got a, a, a coffee account yeah. on the top of my Twitter somewhere. But having said that, all of this is our choice as artists. Yeah. So you know, 
Although I, I, I the, ooh, okay, I have a bit of a soapboxing there, there oh. in terms of, uh, on occasion, I'd walk past, I don't know, a supermarket at 1am or whatever, and whoever I was walking with, I'd, I'd just comment to them, oh, that's, that's, that's sad, that's sad that people have to be, you know, yeah. working at one o'clock in the morning just to, you know, earn a wage. And invariably, I must be in the wrong because whenever I said this to people, people say, it's their choice, isn't it? Well, it's their no. choice. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I buy that. I don't think anybody chooses to work at 1am. I don't know. I'd quite like to work at that time and not have to, you know, do customer service as much. But I know what you're saying. Like, we wouldn't all choose minimum wage jobs if there was the option of higher paid work. Yeah, and a larger scale than that. So... Yeah, we'd be walking past the supermarket, and they'd and I'd say that, and they'd say it's their choice, and I wasn't too convinced by that. And there's something bigger than that, which is, do you have a job that's going to give you minimum wage or just above minimum wage in order to get through your rent and your electric, etc., or will you take a hit on the pay? for something that's going to be more emotionally healthy for you and you're not going to change the world necessarily you're not going to you know you're you're, we're not saying that your life has more import if you are a struggling artist in a garret in Paris or whatever but let's face it you are probably not going to be proud of the fact that like our parents may have been that you made employee of the month four times running yeah I think I think the thing is with us that, like, I don't want to be flippant about going, oh, we live in poverty, ha, ha, ha. And as I said it, I thought, oh, no, but we don't, though, do we? Because relatively speaking, you know, we've got a roof over our heads and we've got clothes on our backs and we've got food in the cupboard, so we're all right. You know, and there's a lot of people that are not all yeah. right, and I don't... I think that we do have a choice in that we've got a lot more options than a lot of people and we have made choices in our lives that have got us here and we are getting by. So I think there's that. But also I think that you and I have both spent a good proportion of our lives, the majority of our working lives, working in customer retail or or sort of minimum wage jobs um and i think that both of us have turned down opportunities in our lives to move beyond those or be promoted out through those i qualified as a primary school teacher um and i i now work part-time as a primary school teacher and i'm i'm amazingly aware of how lucky I am to have that opportunity as well so having said that we don't we haven't chosen traditional careers like primary school teachers to be the thing that we focus our entire careers on our careers are artistic careers and in that way that is a choice but because we've worked in lower paid jobs in our lives and because we've struggled in our lives financially but also emotionally to find fulfillment in those jobs we have made choices to go you know what 
we want something else. So I think there's like a need to do this and a need to do theatre stuff and a need to do writing and a need to produce. Yeah. And that we wouldn't be happy doing anything else because we try and have days off, but it doesn't happen because we always end up producing stuff and being creative. So there's definitely a need for us to do that. And in that, you know, we're just lucky that we've got the choice to do that. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So I've sort of gone round and round and round with that. But yeah. I just don't want to be flippant about going, oh. No, not at all. Yeah. So we are nearing the end of our chat. We've talked about who we are. Yeah. We've talked about where we came from. And we're just going to talk for a little bit about what we're doing. Yeah. And we've got a couple of nights coming up that are we've talked about before, so we won't talk about loads. No. To, um, the, we've got One Woman Alien which people will know about if they listen to the podcast. Um, And that's on at the Printer's Playhouse in Eastbourne for one night only at the end of March. Um, And uh, we've also got Dead Cat Bounce, which is a play that I've written. Um, And again, our listeners will know about that because we've spoken about it before. Um, And that's also on at the end of March at Printer's Playhouse. So I believe One Woman Alien is on on the 23rd of March. And I believe that Dead Cat Bounce is on the 30th of March. Yeah, and obviously, you know, hello to... I'm assuming that each time we have some people who are listening for the first time. Mm. uh, So you're right that anybody who's a regular listener uh, has heard support the tedium mm. about what those two plays are but yeah you're right one woman alien which is on the 23rd is what it sounds like it's the the movie alien told in one hour by one woman uh for one night only this time around yeah uh playing all the characters ripley up to the cat mm. and it's uh, it's a social cinematic political theory uh with um goo jokes and, um, and, <laughs> and uh, slime delightfully low budget props and dead cat bounce is um well, the the idea that wouldn't it be great to get um, superpowers mm. if you're a young woman living in Brighton? Yeah. But not so much. Not if you're poor and uh, trying to pay the rent. Yeah. Because if you're forced to... If you're in, in... If you're compelled to fight crime on the mean streets of Brighton every night and then having to work all day, it's going to be tiring. Because it's not, it's not, being a crime-fighting superhero is not a... Th- thing that comes with a wage package no no so yeah it's a it's a a one hour uh play about um the the pros and cons of being a modern day superhero so if people type in dead cat bounce or one woman alien or indeed both of those followed by the phrase printer's playhouse into the search engine of their choice that will take them through to the ticket links yeah and I'll put them in our show notes as okay, well. Sure. Um, but the thing that we really wanted to talk about as we end this episode is the writing window we have open at yes. the moment, which is for Cast Iron Shorts, which is our prose night. The short stories. Yeah, it's going to be the night is going to be on in June. So you'll hear lots more about that over the next few weeks as we chat on this podcast but the writing window the deadline for that is, is yeah it's in uh, towards the end of april so you haven't got long um we are looking for stories along the theme of sanctuary well, that can be quite a loose f- phrase really. yeah that, that can be whatever, whatever that... you th- that thinks that can be whatever you think it means yeah whatever whatever you mean 
or you are inspired by, the word sanctuary is your starting point, I suppose. It's your safe place. It's your safe place. It might not be. Who knows? We're looking for prose, which is... Uh, 1,500 words, that's your word limit. Um, And those selected stories are going to be performed or read, I suppose, live on stage. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind because there are some excellent prose uh, short stories that work really well when it's just you and the page sat down on the sofa reading. Mm. And there are some that just tick along a little better when you know that they are going to be read out loud mm. not, not necessarily as monologues or speeches they are no. still short stories yep. but that might be useful for you to have the back of your mind that they will successful stories will be read performed out loud in front of a pain audience yeah and they don't yeah like you say they don't they they are still short stories so they don't need to be first person present tense or any of that they can be third person they can include multiple characters with dialogue but they they yeah they need to have that sort of something special that yeah works well being read aloud so yeah that's what we're looking for at the moment and you've also got an acting workshop coming up haven't you yeah for tuesdays in April. April, so not not for the Tuesdays, it's literally the number four, four Tuesdays in April. There is an acting class called Decoding the Script at Sweet Works in Middle Street, Brighton. They are £7 per session, but actually £24 for all four. Um, and pre-booking is, is advised. Uh, pre-booking certainly to get the reduced price for all four, but also to actually ensure those classes go ahead, because obviously there needs to be a minimum number, and so that just for my peace of mind <laughs> to know that I've got that number to, and we can design the classes to make them the best classes for the, the attendees then if you want to again do that Google thing of typing in decoding the script sweet venues that will get you to the appropriate booking in page mm-hmm. to uh, pre-book those classes and we've just done uh, four sessions at the New Venture Theatre which were really great and got some great feedback and so it's just great to be getting back into that particular saddle again of teaching in Brighton. Yeah. So lots going on. We are going to be back next week. Yeah. And this week we spoke a little bit about how we sometimes expect a short play to be constructed. Mm. And so I think we're going to spend a few minutes also because of the op- oncoming storm of the deadline. We're going to be speaking a little bit about how we expect a short story to be constructed, which yeah. doesn't mean that we're right. I mean, uh, oh, no. I, I want to clarify that that we're not we're not. Um, not today, anyway. We're not confl- uh, saying this is how to write a short story. No. It's how we at Cast Iron, what we tend to be looking for at the moment. Yeah. So, um, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Did um, you thanks, enjoy it, thanks, Andrew, thanks, as well? Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a revolution and an evolution. But I, I, managed to, I managed to smuggle through and not talk about myself that much. Yeah, I noticed that. We're um, going to get better at, at peeling open that onion that is you. It, can, it, is that good? If it was like you were going to throw a torch in my eye, um, not just like a lamp. And How do you it. peel onions? No, I'm thinking about like interrogation. Ah. Yeah. But no, it's been an, a genuine education or interrogation. And, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to read this onslaught of short stories that we're yeah. getting through the mailbag at the moment. Yeah, we're already getting quite a few in, so do get your submissions to us. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, 
we yeah. will speak to you next week yeah deadlines coming up to book for the acting class and for one woman alien and dead cat bounce at the printer's playhouse Eastbourne yay enjoy see ya This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. And edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and our website, castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.